can open your Bibles with me to John 17. John chapter 17, we will begin together today. Um, I want to go ahead in just a moment and read uh, at least the first five verses together. Uh, before we do that, I will mention your bulletin is not completely right. It was right. I did plan on covering the first five verses. And I couldn't get out of the first verse really this morning as I started working through and putting the thoughts and the results of all the week's meditation and prayer together. It just seemed to me right before God that we stay in this verse primarily. And so I want to read together, if you'll stand with me if you're able, and we'll read the first five verses of John 17 together and then pray and begin. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You may be seated. If you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, oh God, I, I do tremble at these words. Far be it from us, Lord, to presume to imagine that we have even the faintest conception of this communication between you and your son and the spirit and his involvement. Lord, I pray that you would guard us. Oh, Father, guard us from taking any liberties with these words. Lord, I pray that there would be a fruitful a fruitful reward and benefit for us as we look into the prayer of Jesus Christ. That we could see what's revealed about Himself, about You as Father. Lord, that it would have an impactful impact on our lives that we would grow closer to You and grow in our understanding of what it means to be connected to God, the living God. Father, I do pray for boldness and authority that You would move with might and with power. Oh, Father, help us, we pray. In the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I've had a, a thought this week I'd like to begin with. Have you ever felt as though in your Christian life you've reached sort of a plateau? You all recall, as Christians, when you first began, you were excited. Everything was fresh and new. And you could hardly think of anything else but 
I'm forgiven. Christ died for me and now I, I know God. I'm forgiven and restored. And there's a joy in the early part of the Christian life that sometimes fades a little bit. And perhaps now you've been a Christian for a number of years and this truth of Christ and what He accomplished, sometimes it feels like, okay, is, that, is there more than this? What more is there to know about this? Is there something heartier, something meatier, something a little bit more filling or something that's going to give me something greater in my knowledge of God, experience of God? You know, that's the path that many people start down that leads to all sorts of heresies, all sorts of, we might call, strange fire and attempts to experience God in ways that He's not given to us. But I will say this to any of us here that have reached, it feels as though kind of that, that, that flat ground where we've been going upward and we've reached the heights and it's almost like, how much higher could you possibly go than understanding the glory of the cross? And I just want to remind you, there is a picture given in the Old Testament. Jacob saw something one day. He saw this ladder and it went all the way up and all the way down. And the Scriptures reveal to us that ladder is Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that if we want to grow, if we want to go upward and onward towards God, Christ is the ladder that takes us to God in every way. Not just relationally and forgiving our sin, but also experientially. It's through Christ. And I, I trust that this text, this prayer will help us in that pursuit. The title of this sermon is Holy Ground and Uncommon Prayer. Holy Ground. What I mean by that is that you don't get... I don't believe there's a greater cause for reverence and fear than looking into this conversation between Jesus Christ and God the Father accompanied by the Holy Spirit. I don't believe you can go further than this. There's, there's a sense of real trembling to be expressed when we look at a verse like this. This is something to deal carefully with, but not in some condemned way, not in fear, but hopeful as we look into these words. And I say uncommon prayer because I believe what's expressed by Christ here is meant to be in many ways a demonstration to us of what's available to us with relationship to the Father. And so with that brief introduction, I will... I would go back into John 16, but I'm not going to do that because it is going to be extremely relevant early on. So we begin looking in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You know, one of the benefits that we have in that every week we are going, working expositionally, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, taking chunks at a time in the context that they're given. One of the great benefits of that is that we're forced to see individual verses like this in light of what's come before. You get what I'm saying? That because we've been working through this context, because we've been working through the verses leading up to this, it lends great light and understanding to the context. And so I ask, what do you think the great significance or the great overarching context of John 17 is, particularly in light of where we've been in John 14 and 15 and 16? In other words, here's what I'm asking. 
How does John 17 connect to everything we've been considering together? What is the relationship? Is this something where all of a sudden we've been learning and hearing from Christ? Now in 17, He's doing something completely unrelated to all of that? The statement is no. No, not at all. The importance of why John writes to us and says, when Jesus had spoken these words. And I don't believe that's to be limited to the last couple of verses we've been considering. He says, when Jesus has spoken these words, consider this. <coughs> we began seeing back in John chapter 14, really chapter 13, Jesus' focus was on His disciples. He's no longer proclaiming truth in a public way. He's focused on His people, His followers, the church. And as we progressed through 13 and into 14, we saw this almost... Sections, huge sections of monologue from Jesus where he's teaching and instructing and then maybe one of the disciples has something to ask or something to say. And you get this idea and then into chapter 15 and 16, it's almost exclusively Jesus talking, Jesus saying things. And so I take it that John wants us to know Jesus has been saying these things. Here's kind of a transition that's taking place, a transitional statement, if you will. And here, consider with me just briefly what the primary points. You'll know this if you've been in for our studies in the Gospel of John. And if you haven't, go back and study these things. The primary points that Jesus has been emphasizing these last several months has been this. That He will come to His disciples after His death. Do you remember that? Jesus says, I'll not leave you as orphans, but I'm going to come to you. I'm going to continue ministering to you though I've been crucified in the grave, resurrected and ascended to the Father. I'm still coming to you to minister to you. A chief and important focus he's been making is coming to them after his death. He's been emphasizing the sending of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in John 14 and references even in 15 and then especially in 16 in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's been emphasizing our union with himself. Saying things like this, if you abide in me and you must be abiding in Christ, that's a, a united relationship to Jesus. And he says, says to us repeatedly that the fruit of that abiding relationship with Jesus is that we have access to the Father. You recall, he says that no one comes to the Father except through me. So here are these themes abiding in Jesus, union with Christ, access to the Father, the sending of the Spirit. All of this can be understood by this expression. Our experience of and communion with the Father by the Spirit. But not only that. Do you recall a repeated emphasis on this? That the world hated me, it's going to hate you. That this hatred and tribulation in the world, these themes all building into what Jesus says today. And our relationship, how much has it been emphasized our relationship to the Father by prayer. Just briefly last week, do you remember Jesus saying to the disciples, in that day you will ask in my name? And He says, I do not say that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, but the Father Himself loves you. He's saying, you're going to have access to God in prayer because of your relationship to Me. Now picture this, get this scene in your mind. As we read John 17 in that context, I suggest to you it ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to cause us to tremble in awe just a little bit. And this is why. 
Jesus tells you, you have access to the Father in me. Your union to me gives you access to the Father. You can pray. You can go directly to the Father who loves you. He's telling you these things and all of a sudden he stops talking. And he lifts his eyes and says, Father, do you get the significance of this? Jesus is saying your access to the Father is in me. And then he demonstrates for them what that relationship is meant to look like. Now, now, bear in mind, there are aspects of this text that are exclusive to Jesus. There are things that are going to be said in this prayer that have nothing to do with your own personal experience. Jesus makes some very unique statements about himself. Here's the point, however. The point that I'm driving at is as we read this, we ought to be compelled to consider the way we think about our own prayers with God. You see, Jesus In light of all those points, Jesus knew the Spirit without measure. The Spirit descended on Him like a dove and remained on Him. He knew the Spirit's presence perfectly. We know that. We know that Jesus had a perfect, undiluted, and abiding relationship with the Father. Jesus loved the Father. He knew the Father loved Him. And He was on the brink of the greatest expression of hatred, opposition, and tribulation that the world has ever known. And here he is lifting his voice to the Father. I'm curious, do you remember the point last week that one of our greatest encouragements in the face of tribulation is to know we can go to God in prayer? That God loves us and we can ask our Father directly when we face opposition? Here's Jesus about to face the greatest opposition the world's ever known. And he's going boldly, reverently, but boldly to the Father in prayer. This is meant to communicate something to us about the nature of the relationship and access to God that we have to give confidence. If we truly connect with what it means to be united to Jesus, united to him, union with Christ, to be joint heirs with him, to realize what it means, even as we're considering in the other room, to be adopted by God, adopted into the family of God. If we truly come to see this. And understand that our access to the Father on the basis of His love for His Son and that this very Father sees us in the same way He sees His Son, then Jesus' prayer perhaps will have more significance to us. In essence, this is what I'm saying to you. Jesus is demonstrating to the disciples and to us that the nature of the relationship with the Father that is ours if we're in Him is such that we can come in a like way that He is coming here. Now make no mistake, and I'll repeat this, there are things uttered by Christ that cannot be said of you and me in this section. There are are things, there are exclusionary statements. And we'll see even as a matter of fact, it's those exclusions, those unique things about Jesus that enable us to go in, in a like way. There are exclusions concerning Him, and yet... The nature of the union and access to God that we have is the exact same access that Christ demonstrates for us here. We are free to come to the Father in the way that Jesus comes to Him here. Why is that? Well, Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 1, 3-4, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What am I saying to you? That as a Christian, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. That means something about the relationship that exists within the triune God, the Trinity. You have been brought into that. Now, now very clear, pay very close attention. This does not mean that we are or that we become God. There are people who teach that nonsense. And someone who thinks they're a God, well, they've got a pretty low opinion of what a God is if you think you are one. Here's the reality. I'm reminded of a hilarious R.C. Sproul story, but I'm not going to get into that right now. So, Lord, keep us from being distracted. We do not become God. Notice, if you consider that text from Peter, it does not say that we become the divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature. This means that because of our union with Christ, we have the same access to God and relationship with God as is fitting the divine nature. We get to access benefits of the divine because of our union to Him who is divine. To the One who is God gives us access to God in that way. Here's the point. This is one of the things that makes our relationship to God in Christ greater than Adam's. Adam had sinless, perfect relationship with with God. But we have access to God from the vantage point of the triune relationship. We're, We're partaking of something that is is not possible apart from the relationship that they share in together. It it surpasses that. And as Peter puts it, the great and precious promises of God, what are they? That we would know and enjoy the glories of divine relationship with the Trinity. Here's my point. We have been granted access to this holy ground through the Son. Our text says when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, where's the application? Even now, the application to us, where does it come in? Ask yourself this question as we work through and however long it takes us to get through John 17, be considering this. Do my prayers to the father resemble what is displayed here? Do your prayers to God feel flat or disingenuous or as though they're not connecting with anyone on the other side of it? Do you have the sense when you pray that it's merely you wafting your ideas out into the ethos? Or do you have a convictional sense that there's a God on the other side of what you're saying and he's listening and he's powerful to do something according to what you're asking? Consider is what you see in Jesus prayer. Is it at all realized in your own prayers? I say again. There are certainly things expressed that are unique to Jesus. But my question is, does the same spirit of reverence, of sober mindedness, of humility, glory, love, relationship, and even a bold confidence in God, does that bleed through in your prayers? When you pray, is it just an utterance on the lips or is there raw conviction driving what you're doing and not conviction without reverence and a godly fear? You know, many people... This is a significant point. Many people you've heard refer to the instruction that Jesus gives in Matthew 6 as the Lord's Prayer. That's actually not true. That's a terrible title for that. And I'll take whatever responsibility comes for saying that. And I'm using an ESV and the, the, the title of that section in the ESV says the Lord's Prayer. That's a terrible thing to say. Because that wasn't the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. 
It would be better that we call it the model prayer. You say, well, why do you make such a big deal out of it? Because Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses. He didn't have them. Jesus never prayed that. He's instructing the disciples in a very general way as far as principles that ought to teach us how to fashion our prayers. Jesus didn't pray that. If there is any section in the Bible that ought to be referred to as the Lord's Prayer, it's John 17. For Jesus actually prayed this. He actually offered this petition up to the Father. My prayer is that as we work through these things, we might enter into the glory of these verses. First thing I want to consider with you is this expression. When He'd spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, Now, my first point is that there is something unique in this, and it's actually related to that that teaching in in Matthew six in the model prayer in Matthew six. Jesus recommends that we pray how our father, right? Collective community, our father and John 17. He doesn't say our father. He says, father, there is a uniqueness to his prayer in that. And the truth is, it would be utterly ridiculous and even blasphemous for Jesus to say that if he wasn't who he claimed to be. Remember back from John chapter five, verse 18. This is what is spoken. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is the only begotten Son. He is the only begotten Son. It is only by union to this one and only Son that we have access to God as Father. We pray, Father, Heavenly Father. What for? Because His only Son is the one who's united us to Him. And this is something we must realize when we pray that the Father, God the Father, is prepared to listen to us in the same way that He hears His own Son here. Grasp this. There's a uniqueness to Jesus being able to say Father. There's a uniqueness to that. And yet we who are in Him, because of our relationship to the Son, have that same access to Him as Father. This is extraordinarily important for us. That when we pray, Father, that ought to bring you a great deal of joy and comfort in hearing that. When you pray, God hears me as a child because of Jesus who prays Father. The next thing that we need to be reminded of is that Jesus is praying to an actual person. Just look with me for a moment at the front of your bulletin. There's a very helpful quote by E.M. Bounds. He says, Trust in an historical fact or mere record may be a very passive thing. But trust in a person strengthens the quality. It bears fruit and supplies it with love. The trust which supplies prayer centers in a person. This this reminds me actually of of the, the interaction Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. Where she says, on this mountain we're supposed to worship. But if you'll remember, there's no personal focus of her worship. The Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. And, you know, we say we worship on this mountain, which is. It? But she doesn't identify what they're actually worshiping. Jesus responds to her and says, the hour is coming when those who worship the Father. You see, there is a focal point. There is a personal nature to worship. And the same is true of prayer. 
Jesus prays to someone who can be personally identified as father. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Jesus knew who he was praying to. He knew that there was a person listening to what he was saying. And you might be surprised to find this out. Prayer is not some generic offering. It's not casting good vibes out into the universe. Think of the madness, the insanity of this. Imagining that somehow you releasing the thoughts, feelings, sensations, burdens within you, just randomly releasing it out there somehow is going to alter your life or the experiences of life. It's utter insanity. But so many people will say, sending good vibes your way. What? What, what does that even mean? Jesus says he's praying father. He's praying to someone who is there, who's listening, who's personal, who's observing and knows what's going on. You see, we're not God. If you think that your mere thoughts are going to shape reality, that's essentially what that is. If God's not personal, it's really you who are expecting you and your right prayers, you think, to accomplish anything in the world. But we're saying, no, there's another, not me. And I'm asking him on the basis of who he is. Jesus was praying to a person. That's the first thing. And not only was he praying to a person, but he was praying to one who was living and active. Jesus is praying to one who was interested in the goings on of the world. Do you ever wonder about that? Do you think there's anything in all of the created realm that God's not intimately interested in? I know we're prone to think about that in our own lives. I know that I am. Maybe I'm the only one. But prone to think that this small, insignificant thing, the Father's really not interested in at all. But Jesus prays to the Father, expecting that He is observing Him at that very moment. That there is a connection to the Father, and the Father's listening. He's watching. He's not, and He's not merely casually observing the world as it developed. He's praying to the living God. Jesus, the Father Jesus is praying to is not just a deist God. Not just one who created, wound the world up like a clock and let her fly. We'll see how this turns out. But He's actively engaging. And I get this. This is of necessity truth because He calls Him Father. This is so significant. Jeremiah puts it this way in chapter 10 and verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. This is the one Jesus is praying to. The Lord who is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Now listen. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. You see this? Jeremiah tells us that this God, this living God, He's observing what's happening. He's not just outside of the world watching what happens in an uninvolved way. But as his wrath is stirred, there's an earthquake and newsflash. We're going this way that when Jesus is on the cross, the earth quakes. There's an expression of wrath and a, ven a vengeance even expressed in that the living God acts in the world. He's not just silently watching and uninvolved. Jesus, Jesus is praying to this one, this father. Who's not merely politely waiting for us to give him permission to act. He's the living God, the king of the universe. He's ever watchful. He's all powerful and he brings all of his purposes to pass. That's who Jesus is praying to when he says, Father, what does he say to this father of his? He says, the hour has come. 
the hour has come. Do you recall that being a repeated phrase in the Gospel of John? The hour. There's this expectation of hour, even back to when Jesus is beginning His earthly ministry and He's at the, the wedding feast at Cana and His mother comes to Him and asks Him to do something. They're running out of wine. And He makes this reference to His hour had not yet come. And from there all the way through John up until now, there's this constant, every time they come to arrest Him and kill Him, there's this, well, His hour hadn't come yet. That's why they didn't succeed in putting Him to death before this point. And here we're reading... This hour has come. His hour to go to the cross. His hour to face the justice and wrath of God up until this point had not yet been upon Him. And we started to see this transition back in John 12. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come. To this hour. So we started to see that back in John 12 when Jesus said that. And now it's as though Jesus is saying the culmination of all of that, it's here. He's on the very eve, the night before he would go to the cross, the night before he would face the horrors of God's wrath. And here he is still boldly marching forward. And we, you and I, really have no conception of the magnitude of this statement. Jesus says, The hour has come. The hour to face this wrath. Here's my point. If you and I were to convince, can condense, excuse me, if we could condense every evil thought, every evil action, every heinous thing that's ever taken place into a single insidious expression. You're talking about the world, thousands, six thousand years of evil, of hatred, of vice, of horror. If you could condense it down into one expression we still would not have arrived at the reality of the hour Jesus is describing. And if, if by some miracle you could conceive of all the atrocities of all time in one expression, one single expression, add to that the infinite and fierce hatred of God that all of that evil deserved. This He bore at one and the same time in this hour. This hour the sins of His people and the wrath of God both upon Him. We don't think about that, do we? We think a lot about the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of God, and rightly so. But do you think about the horror that it was for Him who knew no sin to all of a sudden have that very sin upon Him? This is the hour He's describing, and it's come. It's come. If any one of us, if anyone who's ever lived were ever to face this hour, they would run screaming from it and they would be crying out on the rocks and hills to fall on them and hide them from this hour. What does Jesus say? The hour has come. Luke 9 verse 51 says this, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. His hour has come and He knows the fullness of what that means more than any of us will ever probably fully understand. And He still is going that way. He's undeterred. He's not going to abandon this for which He's come. And my question, what's so amazing to me is what is the motivation for this unwavering and impossible resolve, this commitment of Christ to face this hour? What's his commitment to this? 
He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I suggest we could spend several months dissecting that statement, that last part. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We're talking about glory within the Godhead, something that is so incomprehensible. We'll spend all eternity chasing after an understanding of this. And yet, here's our task and burden today to open it up in light of the context in a way that we can hopefully enter into some degree. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The hour has come in light of the fact that the hour has come for this to take place. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Some people have suggested that the primary thing Jesus is asking in this part of the prayer is concerning his resurrection from the dead. That makes sense, doesn't it? Here, Jesus has come to the hour of his death and you, you suppose he's saying, "Okay, Father, I'm going to die. Glorify me. Don't let me stay dead. Glorify me on the other side of the cross. Well, there certainly is a major reality of that. There certainly is an aspect to the father glorifying the son and raising him from the dead. And, and, and we can't escape that. And yet we cannot overlook the glory which is displayed in the cross itself. The glory. Does it not seem like the son is saying in our text, glorify, glorify your son when in this very hour, in the hour that he goes to the cross, glorify me there. That that's when he's lifted up. He's that standard for all the world to see. He's lifted up, glorified in that hour. What what does that mean? believe that we're prone to limit our understanding of glory to expressions of worldly power and achievement. Is this true? Are we prone to think about glory in terms of dominance through great strength or athleticism in sports? We think of glory as some incredible talent in art or music. There's glory to be seen in expressions of greatness. And that's true. That's exactly a a wonderful definition of the glory of God. His own self-expression of His greatness, of His power, of His goodness, of Himself, we could say. And yet, in light of our estimation of glory that we see in beauty that surpasses others, etc., I believe there's something that we miss. Let me suggest to you, as I believe the Scriptures will show us, that the Son, Jesus Christ, what it meant for Him to ask the Father to glorify Him was not only in His victorious resurrection from the dead, but even as He died in apparent weakness. There's glory there. Glory as the Son dies. Now the world isn't prepared to recognize this kind of glory. You take a lost person and tell them, Jesus died, they think, okay, what? Where's the glory in that? Where's the glory in a crucified Jesus? Matter of fact, the Scripture speaks expressly to this. The world glories in pomp and status. If you want to know what glory the world boasts in, just look at popular magazines, social media trends. What do people get really excited about and they want to repeat? And everybody wants to do the same thing and impress their friends by doing the same thing. Or what is the most popular television shows and movies 
That's what the world thinks glory is. And at best, those things are a failing imitation of the glory of God. And that's at their best. And there is such a thing as borrowed capital. Anytime you see a great hero of the story who seems like they're down and out and they're not going to win, think of Rocky Balboa. He, he's just this nobody. He doesn't look like he's going to win. He's at, the, he's at the end there and all of a sudden, victorious. That's borrowed capital. We already know of a story like that that was planned according to the wisdom of God before the world was. And in any semblance of glory, that's true glory, is really borrowing from this particular message. But I say the unbelieving world mocks a crucified God. They don't have use for it. You know why? Because a crucified Jesus is not useful to people as we heard from Mark 2, brother, who think they're already righteous. They think they're already well. They don't think they need a crucified Savior because they don't have anything to be crucified for themselves in their own mind. It's all vain glory that they're after. But there is glory in the cross. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us about the glory. Jesus says, glorify the Son. Well, let's look at what that looks like in the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, begin reading in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you want to know something interesting about that word power? It has a very similar root to the word glory. And matter of fact, you'll find translations at times that interchange glory and authority and power for the words that are used. And here's what we're being told. There's glory. There's power in the cross to us who are being saved. Those who don't see Christ, those who don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ, even on the cross, it's foolishness to them. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But if God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You don't want to know another way of saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Glorify God. Show forth this is God's power, God's glory. That's what it means to boast in the Lord. Jesus is boasting in the Lord. Glorify the Son that the Son might glorify the Father. That's what He's saying to Him. 
And it just occurs to me in this expression, the world does not, they're not prepared to glory in a crucified Savior. Why not? They think that they've earned something. There's something good in them to be worthy of this. I don't know about you, but it's pretty encouraging to me to read not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, not many who have anything to claim for themselves, not anybody who comes, not many who come from some great heritage, people that the world despises, those who are looked down upon, those who are thought to have nothing to boast in. They say, you're right, I don't have anything to boast in. Do I, Stephen? I don't have anything to boast in but him, right? It's not what the world says about me. It's what Jesus says. This is the glory of God that's seen in the cross. That He takes things that the world says that's nothing and makes something out of it. And the truth is, the world's right when it says there's nothing in me. It's their estimation of their self that's the problem. Now here's the point I want to make. The cross of Jesus Christ was not merely the means by which God was forced to exact payment for our sins in order to save us. You understand what I'm saying? It's not as though God looks at man fallen in sin and says, what must I do to save them? I know, son, go die for them. This was the plan from the beginning. What I'm telling you is that this is how God has chosen to demonstrate and declare His character to the world. Some say, why did God allow Satan in the garden in the beginning? It's because he'd already made a covenant with his son that his son was going to go and redeem a people who fell. It was God's purpose. He ordained the fall to glorify himself in the cross of Christ. Christ was headed to the cross before the world was. What for? Why? Because it demonstrates God's character and perfect wisdom. And I say the world may glory and power and strength to dominate others. And the living God surely has all power and strength. Here's the wonder of the cross. Is that the God of all strength, the God of all power, humbled Himself for the sake of another. What does that tell you about the character of God? What I'm telling you is that the cross is itself glorious. Not just in what Jesus did for us by it, but the cross itself tells you something about the character of God. What does He say? It says to you that the one who was worthy of all honor, glory and praise, the one who would have been perfectly justified in pouring out hot vengeance and wrath against everyone who opposed him. The one who upheld the entire universe with a single word. That's the one we're describing on the cross. This one endured the agonies of men by the hands of wicked men. He endured the hell under the wrath of God with perfect humility. And the cross is a testimony to us of the character of God's love. The character of God's love is seen in this. Have you ever thought about this? We like to say this, and it's a wonderful definition. Jesus is meek. Meek, right? Meek is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. It's being able to control your strength. And think about this with Jesus. Have you ever imagined Jesus had all power, all authority, He was God. And as the wrath of God was upon him, as men mocked him, how is it possible that he didn't, the universe didn't collapse into nothing? How is it that Jesus endures this and continues upholding the world and the entire universe by the word of his power, even as this happens to him? 
Look with me for a moment at Philippians chapter 2. Surely we ought to be familiar with this, but think about this in the light of Jesus saying, Father, glorify me. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Think on this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen intently to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, paused all power, all authority, he was God. He, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He goes to the cross demonstrating the humility and the perfect character of God. But not only that, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the parallel in our text now? Jesus says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. And in Philippians, we're reading, how is it that the Son is glorified? It says in the text that, that therefore, in light of His death on the cross, therefore, His humiliation, therefore, God has highly exalted Him. He's exalted in the midst of His going to the cross. He's lifted up there. And how, how does this glorify the Father to the glory of God the Father? How? Let me suggest to you, the cross is a demonstration of the perfect love that existed in the Trinity for all eternity. What do I mean by that? This may sound complex. Listen, if you want to enter in, if you want to climb that ladder and go upward, listen to this concept in light of who God's revealed Himself to be as three in one. This is what, he's, this is what I'm selling. This is what I'm telling you. That the perfect love that existed in the Trinity for all eternity was infinite. It was endless. And it was selfless. You're talking about perpetual esteem and affection for others with no stipulations, with no conditions, with no quota, and without reciprocation being required. The love that was enjoyed within the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. There's no sin. There's no failure. There's just perpetual self-giving and honoring and loving and enjoying of others. Constantly, without end. What you see as Jesus is glorified on the cross is the unconditional Trinitarian love of God being demonstrated. As the Son is glorified, he could at one and the same time glorify the Father. He can say to you and me, the love that I've known with my Father is this kind of love that's without conditions. And because of His cross, it's made available to you. Here's the point. 
The Son vindicated the Father. The the Son shows you that for all these years that man has been in sin, that God the Father has engaged with man, that God is not unjust for doing so. That God didn't eliminate us all as soon as Adam fell. God is not just apart from Jesus doing this. He vindicates His Father. In one very real sense, what Jesus does on the cross is as selfless a thing, not only for you and me, as selfless towards the Father. The Father who's endured and and, and been forbearing with man and patient with man. All of a sudden, the Son says in His cross, My Father is just. He does require justice. I'm going to go and accomplish it. My Father's vindicated. And at one and the same time, love for His people as He suffers what they deserve. And then the Father, here's this Trinitarian reality. The Father vindicates the Son by raising Him from the dead. And His resurrection forever proclaims that Jesus Christ's love offering was accepted. The Father said, it is good, it is right, it is fitting. Son, you have done exactly as I've asked you to do. I'm pleased in it. Jesus says, Father, glorify the Son. The Son may glorify you. Do you realize that the message which has been proclaimed to the world is not merely that we get to escape judgment? That's good news. We get to escape judgment. That's not the primary message. It's not merely that we get to go to a place of bliss and ease and comfort. Though we anxiously await heaven, we groan within just like creation for the revealing of the sons of God. We want to see that that final redemption of our bodies in glorified state. We we long for that. But that's not our primary message. Those things, as wonderful as they are, are not the ultimate end. The message to the world, the message to you, is that God, by way of the cross, has invited, He's beckoned, He's compelled, and He's even commanded you to enter in to this eternal relationship with Himself. The cross, yes, it's atonement. Yes, it's satisfying just wrath against your sin. But it's also a demonstration of the very kind of relationship He's drawing you into. When He says, come unto Me. The summons of the cross is nothing less than a relationship with the triune God. That's what He's saying to you. That's what Jesus demonstrates in this prayer as He interacts with His Father. And so, we move to close, I would say this, to the lost. If you're not a Christian, God knows. He sees all and knows all. There's nothing hidden from His sight. He sees you today. To the lost, I say, that you would be granted eyes to see the glory of what awaits those who trust in Christ. That you would see this. It's, 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 it's an amazing thing that Christ, that the Scripture says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That God says, I'm going to love this people. And as we look to the cross, we see the Father has loved me in this way. Look what He's done. Look what He's accomplished for me. And I say, oh God, that You did this for me. That You would see that. The cross 
But to the saved, to the Christian, I say that we would enjoy the fullness of all that is ours in Christ. We're a neglectful bunch, a neglectful lot. And we can make excuses all day long about how the charismatic people are blaspheming the Spirit, but if we ourselves are neglecting Him, I suggest to you we're not much different than them. Do you suppose it might? Do you think it's very honoring to the Spirit of God to ignore the glories of what's been promised to us in Christ? No. To the Christians that we that our prayers would reflect a true understanding of the living God, that we pray with a sense of conviction and excitement. And I'm not saying that you sound articulate or eloquent. I'm saying that though your lips may be quivering as you pray, that you might still go boldly. That Jesus has opened the door for you to go boldly to the Father and know that the one you're going to is not wavering and not quivering in the slightest. The character of the one you're going to. All these things, my prayer, is that God alone will get the glory in the church, in this church, which Christ has purchased with His own blood. We talk about this, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. But... As significant as that is, I mean, we could work through, and I don't, I trust the Lord. Sometimes it may come across as somewhat of a joke, but I say, well, I don't know how far we're going to get. And there's some humor in that. Humor in that. But I hope you realize that what our aim is as we work through these verses is to hear from God. Jesus communicating God, and for us to have a greater understanding of these things than just. Knowing the right thing to say. I mean, honestly, where does this meet with you in your prayers? Do you have this sense when you go to the Father that you can pray with a kind of confidence that Jesus is praying with here? And you can say, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. I know, neither am I. But He's telling us something about our access to the Father. I pray that we would enter into that. And so, finally, once again, to the lost, there will never be a greater invitation to you than the cross of Christ. Just this week, Randy and I read from a devotion book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's interesting because I read the wrong day. I missed a day and I read the wrong day. But the, the, this is what it was titled. was The cross is an invitation. And the contrast of the blood of Jesus with the blood of Abel. He said the blood of Abel, it doesn't invite you to anything. All it does is call forth judgment and wrath. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground after Cain slew him and called for judgment. But the blood of Christ is the testimony of God's love for all those who are united to His Son. I pray you would know that and trust in Him today. So that I'll be closed and ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Father, Lord, help us to not presume upon these things, to never presume upon You, but oh God, help us to not doubt You either. I pray for boldness to come to You. I pray for confidence in Your Son and a realization of the depths of Your love that though it's expressed 
and the accomplishment of requirements due to legal demands that your love far surpasses mere legalities. Oh God, help us to enter into these things as those who've been made partakers of the divine nature. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.